There we go. Now you can. Anytime. And we're rolling? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hi, this is Doug Jones, and you're listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. I know! Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you can be so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you've been guilty of witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Welcome to yet again another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night, the only podcast to guarantee it's a waste of electrons. Absolutely. But you hear stuff. This is episode 477. It's another pandemic countdown day here. So in Area 51, we have the amazing Marie Powell. And it's Watersight. Hey, um, we're still in social distancing show mode because of that and the need for the clogging of the interwebs. Uh, the whole world is caught up on Zoom and it's difficult to get a solid signal. We're once again using the paired back cast, hoping for the best or whatever. So at some point, Commander Cam will get used to my taunts. Or maybe he won't. I really don't give a damn anymore. Uh, and I'll have to figure out how to reprocess himself because Sonic Green is human and everybody knows that. Um, and we're getting used to uh, getting closer to episode 500. So once again, we ask the musical question, Cam, what are you getting me for episode 500? I told you last time, it's going to get, get back. Get, get, get. Oh, is that what's banging around in the other room? Yes. Did yes, you get me no, a puppy? No, no. Did you get me a puppy or is it an alligator? Let's just say if you squint, it could be either. Now, get, get. Okay. All right. I think I've got it. Okay. So you were saying dome. And believe cool. me, but that had nothing to do with your present. You I got swear. me an alligator puppy. Excellent. Excellent. Baby alligators. That's what we needed here in Area 51. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sure Kriana wants some baby alligators to take care of her two kitties, but that's okay. We'll let her play with the two kitties. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, I'll ask her about that when I see her. Anyway, um, we're talking to this week, Marie Powell, who's got her second book in her series. You've, you've really got to put the alligator, baby alligators away. Okay, <laughs> will do. <laughs> her second book in her series uh, of the uh, Gifted series, last of the Gifted series, Watersight. And I want to welcome Marie Powell back because this is just one of the most beautiful series around. Marie, welcome back to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for the compliment on the series, too. It's great. Um, this is one of the most wonderful series uh, we have ever read, and both Cam and I agree on this, because uh, it, it's set in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. It is uh, uh, one of the most imaginative and, and uh, evocative series of books I've ever read. It's at thank you at a point imaginative historically accurate and 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 yet not <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm sitting here and i'm reading it on my mac so i come across a term and i go she's making this up and then i hit what does this mean and they go no it's it's actually something <laughs> uh, <laughs> well that's good I, and I realized that it's it's historically accurate, and yet this is uh, this is uh, based on 
your travels to research your own past in 2006. Yes, and 2011 as well, we went back. And when you went back a second time in 2011. Yeah, Watersite especially, because um, we, we went to places like uh, Dolgetlai, which is actually the model for the little holding that they end up in at the end, and uh, also to the area that was possibly Garth Kellen. We went, you know, and had had days there, you know, and so on. And we kind of toured Anglesey as well, the island where the Welsh probably had, uh, were quite dependent on Anglesey in terms of um, the farming and agriculture. Apparently it was quite fruitful, I guess. Um, and it was part of how they lost the war was that um, Edward took the advice of Gerald of Wales, who had said, if you, if you, uh, could take Anglesey, you would probably be able to take Wales, and that's what he kind of did in order to defeat them finally. Yeah. So this is part family history, Mm. part historical fiction, part fantasy. So talk talk to me about the characters that you created, the brother and sister team uh, who are who are these wonderful fantasy creations, Cat and who? It's, <laughs> it's um, these, I'd started with Hugh, really. It was my, um, he was where the whole thing began. The, the book Spirit Sight that comes before this one is the one right. that, um, that's that we talked of, about a couple of months ago. Yeah. And, um, I just was free writing one day trying to kind of figure out what it would be like if you could connect with the minds of animals. And I had just done a journalistic piece on hawks. So it was hawks that came to mind first mm-hmm. and um, kind of it went from there. And Catherine actually wasn't in the story for a long time. This was my um, the first part. The first book was kind of my thesis project at UBC. And at that time, Catherine was just, you know, the little sister, kind of the unknown, you know, she was there, <laughs> um, but she wasn't really part, a big part of the story until I, I went to um, this really incredible place in the U.S. It's, it's run by Highlights for Children. It was called Highlights Chautauqua. They don't do it there anymore in Chautauqua, New York, but I was there for the last um event that they had there and I got a scholarship to go so I was really you know thrilled and whatever and I don't know some some at some point there I added Katrin in um just I needed to have a way to talk about what was lost and she was my way in you know she was the one who was going to be because at that time I think more than today you know girls girls were kind of the mainstay of the culture in a sense, but they were also expected. There was a lot ex- expected of them. And I wanted a character that had to fight all that, you know, somehow and, and make a way for herself. And mm-hmm. she really took over book two <laughs> in like a big way um, coming into her own. And that's, you know, part of the young adult nature of the story is, you know, that it's, it's basically her journey into um, a lot of, darkness and a lot of you know self-reliance that I think maybe she wouldn't have had without the invasion without her role in that um and she she yeah it was it was interesting writing her especially um one of the things that I found out about when I was doing the research was that apparently in the 1800s some guys you know digging in the hills in in uh, north wales found this um, um, chalice kind of thing and they realized that it was probably from the abbey that's in Watersite, the abbey around the holding of, of Dolgatlai and um, that chalice, like my fa- my family connects to that because we we had, uh, my mother at one point um, you know, wrote away for some information about the Powell family, right? And the one thing we we got back was that we were keepers of the grail. And I think it was supposed to be referring to the Holy Grail, right? 
But what happened in in, in 13th century Wales is that the seal, the um, sort of uh, thing that um, Llewellyn the, the last would have signed his documents with, right. like literally a, a seal that he would have placed in wax, you know, to show his uh, his you know crest or colors or whatever. Um, it was it was taken from his body after he was killed. So Edward I had that from very early on. In fact, the Archbishop of Gant Canterbury had it. And um, Edward ended up taking that, taking the seal that belonged to the family of de Montfort, which Eleanor de Montfort had, apparently. <laughs> um, and she, when she died in childbirth, that went to her daughter. He got that. And also, I believe, David's. And he melted them down into a chalice. And he gave it to... Um, supposedly to an abbey in Lincolnshire as part of, you know, um, his payment to the abbeys there to look after the two girls that were the daughters of, of uh, Llewellyn and David. Anyway, they found this chalice and they thought maybe that was the chalice that had been, you know, that the Welsh had actually gotten it back. That was just a, a kind of a speculative comment in a footnote by J. Beverly Smith, the great um, researcher and historian that has kind of chronicled the life of Llewellyn the last. And I thought, huh, a grail and a chalice are kind of like the same thing. What if my family was actually supposed to be keeping track of not the Holy Grail, which kind of like doesn't exist, <laughs> right? But the chalice that Edward had melted their seals down into, which could, you know, you know, prove a, like a, a rally, a rallying talisman for the for the people of Wales, right? And so that's and now this, that thought sparked. <laughs> yeah, it sparked this whole character in this whole book. Just thinking wow. that that you know she might be the one who, and we know that. Um, there were relics. The, the, the relics are quite real, like the, the Cross of Neath and the, um, mm -hmm. the Crown of Arthur, which supposedly they had, which they don't have anymore, and the Coronet of Llewellyn that Llewellyn was given by um, Edward, the, well, Edward's dad, I guess, uh, in a previous time. Anyway, um, those things actually existed, and Llewellyn did hide them, apparently, at the Abbey. So I was playing around with that as well, like how could... Who, because we know David was at Dalbadern at some point there. You know, all of this history is a little bit convoluted because the documents have been destroyed, right? But piecing it back together as best we can, um, we know that he was running from the English army and that they could never seem to catch him. They tried to catch him at Dalbadern. They tried to catch him at um, Castellibere. And then they tried to catch him at Dalbadern. And... Um, Maybe not in that order, but, you know, maybe in that order. It's kind of like that. So I was playing with those things as well. But um, at some point in there, someone gives him, gives Edward I the talisman that, that they were hoping would rally Wales. So I wanted to play with how that happened as well. Because sometimes one side... Um, well, you know, the, 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 the people who are the victors write the history, right? So sometimes you might hear that something was given to someone and actually it was taken. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's all sort of wrapped up in the in the story of Watersight, trying to work out how could those things have happened um, from the Welsh point of view, rather than from the point of view of the victors who wrote the history, right? Reading between the lines, reading under the lines and around the lines to try and figure out how it might have happened, and then. Also, because I have the fantasy characters, right, to to do it with. So that's kind of where I was coming from with uh, all the different things I was putting into the book, Watersight. And I also wanted to follow up on a lot of the um, themes, you know, and aspects that I put into Spirit Sight. And I wanted to use those and kind of follow them through so that it had a nice feel to it, a nice sort of, you know, round arc, shall we say, <laughs> to a lot of the different mythologies and, and uh, legends that I was using. The beauty of uh, these two books is it is a uh, a Welsh tapestry, if you will, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that is one part 
history, one part fantasy, mm -hmm. one part family and tradition, and mm -hmm. one part filling in holes uh, that have been erased by time. Yes, and trying to fill them in the way the way that so that they would ring true with Welsh legends and and sort of the magic realism, I guess, that they had sort of developed through their um, the songs and the poetry, you know, that um, trying to say something that, you know, one might understand if one was in the know, but not if one was the enemy. You know what I mean? And keeping those things, um, keeping those which, things in mind while I was trying to do it. Fill them in with a beautiful heart. Great. You, I, you really did. Glad to hear you say that. <laughs> I mean, and and that as 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 Commander Cam and I have been talking <clears throat> throughout the day today, we've noticed that over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things I said last time, and I will repeat it again, is you've taken that tapestry that's been damaged over time, you know, moth-eaten fire whatever can destroy a tapestry and you've just seamlessly woven this amazing story into it so that if somebody came along they would not know where what is known history ends and your story begins it just fits it just it fits seamlessly cool that's what you know that's what i wanted right because fantasy is there's no way you know it, on the surface of things, you you say to yourself, well, this never happened and this couldn't happen and this doesn't follow the right rules and blah, 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 right? But what I wanted was it to be plausible enough that um, my, it, you know, you could call this speculative history. <laughs> yes, right? yes. Like speculative fiction, this is speculative history. Somebody said that to me at, at one point. Um, I, I have played around with this type of writing before in nonfiction. And so, uh, someone here who was a mentor of mine once said, you're kind of writing speculative nonfiction. How can you do, you know, like, <laughs> but that's kind of what I was doing. I was taking that and putting it into this as well, because what I wanted was something that that was, like you said, so, so plausible that you um, had to remind yourself that obviously there weren't people who could transform into other creatures, right? Oh, there weren't there? But, you know, oh, come that's on. Exactly. No. That's like, and I want... I want it to be, oh, that's how it happened. No, no, wait. Couldn't have I, I kind of want that um, moment of suspension of disbelief where someone has to remind themselves that, no, nah, it couldn't have happened this way. Because there's no way to know. That's the, the beauty of this particular time period and this particular story. So much is lost that I'm filling in gaps that will never, there just isn't anything to fill them in with. It doesn't matter how much, um, digging they do it doesn't matter how much um, looking they do it was it was deliberately destroyed the the documents that might have proven how anything happened right so it's yeah. all legend and it's all kind of you know, these weird legends that are are welsh you know which are half magic and half uh chance and and a lot of just basic luck or something you know like as to how someone gets in and out and how someone might run out of luck like llewellyn at the end of his life um, but we we'll, there, there was a whole period of time where he was so reviled, you know, that, that people didn't study him and people didn't want to have anything to do with him. And they, there's a lot, um, that's coming out now about him that, uh, that was at hidden or just not looked at or not considered by scholars before, because he was always reviled. I mean, he was the guy that wouldn't pay homage to Edward and he wouldn't do this and he wouldn't do that. <laughs> There was no attempt, really, um, up to the last maybe 10 or 15, 10 or 20 years. There was no attempt to think of it from Wales's point of view, from his point of view, you know. Um, well, the, the, the entire Welsh background for, was was just kind of either ignored or erased for years and years and years and decades. Was, yes, very much so. It was, and, and people will still say, oh, I just thought it was part of England. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> That's because they took it over. <laughs> I mean, like it's like um, it's like that. It's there's stuff. There's interesting things coming out now that I was able to use to and you know kind of throw in here. So um, I was really happy to be working with uh, an actual historian on this. I was scared to work with a historian because I thought they're not. You know, you think like 
you think about uh, the famous authors who've worked uh, with periods of history and and done this, you know, revisionist, I guess, history or whatever to it. And um, sometimes historians get really angry, right? There was, uh, I think, didn't somebody sue Dan Brown for not, for uh, using his history or not using it right or whatever. But, you know, like I, I was afraid to work with historians because I thought maybe they would say, well, you can't say that, you know. But I found the best historian in, in Danielle Sibalski, who is also a Canadian, uh, whose who's weird area of expertise is 13th century and to some extent Wales. So um, I was really happy to work with her because she was very much not like that. Like she was very much like, well, I see what you're saying here and maybe this could happen, you know, probably would have happened this way. Right. So it was kind of fun to, you know, uh, follow her down rabbit holes or drag her down rabbit holes with me. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of both the same way. Yeah. To kind of just look at how. Um, how we might make this really accurate, like really historically accurate at the same time as it's totally not because it's fantasy, right? Um, plausible, like I said, it, I, I was really going for a plausibility factor. So I'm really glad to hear you say that because that's exactly what I want from this series. Well, the the other uh-huh. part of this series that concerned me from day one mm-hmm. was you considering yourself to be a juvenile author. Mm-hmm. Which, which in fact, for most of your work, you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you kept referring to this as as juvenile fantasy. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> well, for me, um, mm-hmm. I, I tend not to pigeonhole work, or or try very hard not to pigeonhole any work, mm-hmm. and just kind of read it as well. Here's a book. Let's see where it takes me. Um, the reason for that is, um, well, two things. Number one, uh, Kurt Vonnegut always said, I'm not a science fiction writer. Why did they put my stuff in the science fiction section? Hmm. And he's kind of right. He was kind of right. He really wasn't a science fiction writer. He's just a damn good writer. Hmm. And, and Robert Heinlein always was kind of bemused by the fact that people thought a lot of his stuff his early stuff was was juvenile science fiction. And when you go back and look at it, it kind of really wasn't. Mm-hmm. So when when your stuff kind of came out and, and was pigeonholed that way, I started reading it and I went, why are people saying that? Uh, simply because a lot of her other stuff was meant for much younger readers. I don't see anything in the style that would make me think this is juvenile or young adult uh, fantasy. It doesn't read that way. It's not scripted that way. I don't think it belongs in that pigeonhole. It's just really good writing. Oh, thank you. That's really a compliment. I um I think of it as a young adult story though because the 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 journey of the characters is to find a place for themselves in the world so um more like I I don't know I think of it as kind of modern in a sense too weirdly enough just because it is uh, you know, I th- I think that there's a whole lot of stuff going on right now and a whole lot of really good fiction being written right now mm-hmm. um, in which this falls. So oh, glad. glad. Yeah. Cause it's like, um, this is about people who are been, who have been displaced and there's a lot of people in the modern world who are feeling the same, I think um, forced out of places like the, you look at Syria, places like that. Um, you look at uh, Central America. Sure. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of this going on everywhere right now. And uh, there's a whole lot of people who could take the time frame out of this book and the setting out of this book, move it to another time and another setting, and it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. There's, some, there, there's hopefully some resonance there, yeah. Because There's that's, a lot of resonance there, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's good. That's that's what I want, too, you know. It's... um. It's an it's a it's a difficult thing to try and do that 
I really had to work at that. You know, I, I really I really worked hard at this. And this has been through a lot of different readers and a lot of different feedback and a lot of different versions. Um, I have one one uh, friend who who read it early on. And and when I presented it later, she was like, this is like a completely different book. <laughs> and she was kind of annoyed because um, I had made so many changes to things that went on into the tone and the the journey of the character and what I was putting them through, you know, but it, but it was, that was what I was aiming for. I wanted it to have a kind of a modern resonance to it because it had that for me when I ran into this research in, and I was in, um, in, in Dolithelin Castle, the ruin of it, right? What's left of it. And it's very, it was a very weird experience because I'd just been to a couple of the castles that are, the big castles that Edward created, you know, Conwy and Carnarvon, and we had guided tours, and there was a little museum shop, and we went, you know, got little souvenirs and blah blah blah. And then I got, I drove to this doll with Ellen, and it was like there was nobody anywhere. There was nobody at the gate. There was nobody to take my. I had a ticket. There was nobody to take my ticket. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like okay, um, like I paid a lot of money for that anyway, um, in English pounds, you know. But um, and then I, I like there were these signs which which were like people falling off of rocks and it was kind of like enter at your own risk. Right. So I, like I go in there and it's very pretty. It's very beautiful country around there and very stark. And, you know, this big stone thing, like it's not that big, actually. It's kind of little, but it looks big as it's sitting on the top of this hill against the gray sky and whatnot and uh, walked up into it and walked around the area. And then there was this this door up on the in the middle of the what would you would think of as like the first floor and there were these stone stairs rickety ones you know going up to the door anyway following up myself up to the door and then um, going in and finding sort of placards like historical placards sitting around and reading them and going gosh that happened in Regina in you know, the 1950s, 40s and 50s, weird, you know, and it was like the story of the First Nations people to me in a sense that my city had gone through and had done, you know, and here it was being done to um, a totally different people like 800 years earlier. And I thought, wow, it's like they learned how to subjugate people here. <laughs> right? I just like it was a revelation. And I thought, how interesting. And that's what that's what took me so long, I think, in the writing of it. That's what I, I wanted that feeling that that this is not just a, an old story about some time that happened in the past and some people that are gone, you know, but that it was kind of like a story that is still going on. And it's still part of what we need to kind of deal with in the world that we're living in. And, some and realizing, yeah, that it was it was. 800 years ago and 100 years ago mm -hmm. and still is relevant today mm -hmm. and uh, with, with the things that, that that you know people are still living through today it's like i wanted this and i think maybe katrin's story um is katrin's the one who deals harder with that than her brother even you know like she she's the one who really has to kind of deal with that how do you make a place for yourself when that's going on around you? And when you don't quite trust yourself, you don't, you're not, you don't know enough or you don't understand enough and you're constantly kind of struggling and searching and trying to find a way to, you know, protect things without destroying anything else, you know? Well, protect yourself, protect mm -hmm. your family, your protect family. your heritage, protect those around you. Mm -hmm. And 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 somehow make a place for yourself among everything else. I mean, those are those are and and live with the losses that you can't get back. You know, and like it, you notice it's her that causes. It's like sort of her fault that some of the things are lost. Um, but she does find a way to make that work you know she she comes to a realization that she can pass along to others about the importance of people over things you know there's things we can't take with us but we can take each other and, and it seems to me that you made a conscious decision to have her be that way yeah yeah i actually had to go back and and throw out an entire 
piece of the story to, <laughs> you know, to make this work. it was, it was, but it, it was good. And, and I'm really, I'm really glad I got the feedback I got on the book prior to. This was a tough book to write um, because it's not about, you know, like epic fantasy is about winning, right? <laughs> you're supposed to win, you know, your characters are supposed to. I don't do, know. do you not think that Kat wins? I do, but she doesn't win in a traditional way. Right. There's no there's no epic battle. They defeat yeah. the evil king. They, yeah. they you know, they they, they rise they again. They you don't know. defeat the evil king. In fact, he defeats them. You know, in yeah. a sense. he takes their stuff. Right. <laughs> in fact, one of the things that I said to Dome after reading the first book, and it's true with this book, is unfortunately, I know the history now. I've read the history. So it's like going into your book. It's like, you know, they're not going to defeat the evil king, Edward. They're not going to, you mm -hmm. know rescue david they're not going to do all i'd say 800 things. year old spoiler alert here but no, <laughs> yeah i'm so i'm so sorry yes 800 year old spoiler alert for anybody that has not read the book but the welsh do not win that the war. welsh don't okay. win the war no they don't okay terribly sorry man you might want to edit that one out though you know that was really i was I, I i'm gonna have to leave it in sorry I do such a good job with spoilers and I just messed that one up. There goes my streak. Um, but yes, is that, is that you, you have a story that is going into it. Anybody that knows histories knows there's not a happy ending there. And you manage to find a happy ending because the characters manage to find a way to go on. Even yeah. if, you know, there isn't a huge victory, but there is a, there is a small, very personal victory for a lot of these characters. Yeah, and that's the way it is, right? Like, these are survivors, and that's what we all are, in a sense. Um, you know, the world is a tough and difficult place. It's not for most of us, maybe not for everybody. Maybe for some people it's happy and, you know, whatever. But for most of us, I think it's a it's a difficult world to live in. And you have to find a way. Um, you're, you, you, it would be nice if you never made any mistakes, right? But you you do at some point and you have to find a way through that to the other side of it and you have to make it not defeat you. You know, you have to find a way so that it so that what is taken from you doesn't defeat you and that you find the kernel of what is that that you can hang on to and bring with you. That's what Kat's story really is all about. Can I just say that I do think the cat has a smile on her face at the end of the book. Yes. Oh, yeah. I really do believe that. It's a different smile, though. Very different smile than the girl. Oh, it's not, a, it's not a grin. There's no question about it. Yeah. But there is a smile on her face at the end of the book. That, that... Mona Lisa smile. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. And I will definitely agree that this is not the same cat I met at the beginning of book one. No, and not it, at all. It really feels she feels like she has grown so immensely and so beautifully. It's just she has matured wonderfully, you know, from the character that almost felt like at least in the first half of the first book was being pulled along by what the events that she was living in. It wasn't yep. until the end of this, the first book that you really felt like she was beginning to swim against or try to swim against the tide of the events and, yeah. you know, had become stronger and she just massively matured in this book. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is her, what do you call that? Buildings Roman? <laughs> well, yeah. Boys. What is the girl one? I don't know, but this is, this is that for her. Yeah. Yeah. Was yeah. 16 years between that family trip to Wales mm -hmm. and this book's final edition. Almost 16 years. Yeah. What did you get from this, this odyssey? I got a lot actually i i think i i matured along with her in a way um which is i'm really it's really late for me to mature but nevertheless <laughs> i do think um it was it was hard it was a real challenge to me as a writer and i think i told you last time i actually went back and got my mfa to write this book these books this series um because i came to the realization that it was bigger than me 
And what I wanted to do was more ambitious than anything I'd ever done, tried to do before and probably more ambitious than I was ready to do. Um, so to some extent, those 16 years were I was I was writing this book, you know, off and on through that entire time period. But it was like writing it and then, like I say, revising it, writing it, rewriting it, revisioning it, re-envisioning it, <laughs> revising it again, you know, over like uh, it's not the usual journey and it's not the journey I would recommend for writers, young writers to go on. <laughs> but it was a really good experience for me. I wrote a lot of other stuff at the same time I was writing this, you know, a lot of my I have 40 books published that are children's books, and most of them came out while I was writing these, these two books. Um and a lot of I, I write nonfiction articles. I write, you know, journalistic nonfiction and I write even write for trade magazines. And it, it all was going on while I was writing this. So I think my writing is better. Um, I hope <laughs> my writing is better than it was when I started. But also um, just the like, I don't think I'm ready for somebody to tell me the traditional way to write a to write a book anymore. You know, I think I found in, in writing these two books that it was very different for me. And I think what, what I came to realize is that it's actually probably very different for everybody. There isn't a kind of a formula to writing a piece of fiction and there sure isn't a formula to writing fantasy. You know, a lot of, along the way I got asked a lot of really strange questions and um, I've come to realize that they aren't relevant to this book you know like <laughs> those are probably good questions to ask but you know it doesn't really relate <laughs> um to what i'm trying to do and and it was it, it was a good journey um but it was a hard one you know what i mean I, I, there was a lot of soul searching i had to um put aside a lot of uh I guess feelings along the way too, and 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 recognize other that there were other um, tie-ins that I hadn't thought of. You know, um, were there times writing this book when you said, you know what, I I I'm not going to do this. Yeah, I'm not oh, going to yeah. finish this book. But seriously, if I hadn't found the Creative Academy of Writers and for writers, if I hadn't found those, like I went on a writing retreat, it was like. I the I had put out a version of this and and it kind of didn't work and I was pretty depressed about it. I tried to get this published and it was rejected and I was pretty depressed about that. And um, I thought, why am I even doing this? You know, this is not it's not cool anymore. It's not the Celtic history isn't really where it's at right now and nobody's going <laughs> to want this and nobody's ever going to publish it. Nobody's going to read it even if, if I do publish it, right? And uh, I should just not do it. I should just stop writing. I should just go crawl under a rock and, you know, <laughs> whatever, right? And in the middle of that, I heard, I thought, well, I, it would be nice to get away from my life and and try and figure this out or try and figure out something else to write or something, right? And I heard about this um, this cruise, a writing retreat on a cruise by the Surrey International Writing, uh, writing Conference, the SIWC in Surrey. Um, they had decided to do a cruise for as a writing retreat. And I thought, that's cool. I just about missed the deadline. It was like the day before the deadline. I ran into it on Facebook or somewhere and um, contacted them. And I was just in time. And it was really kind of expensive for, you know, me. And um, anyway, I, I said, yes, I'm going. And I went. And during that cruise, I met this amazing woman, Eileen Cook. And she read part of Watersight that I was struggling with. And she gave me some really good, intelligent feedback. She took it seriously, you know, and, and she said, this is what you're doing right. And this is what I think you should do. And I think you should finish this book, you know. And it was like, that's what I needed to hear. Um, and without that, I probably would never have finished it. So it took me about six months or so to actually join the group of the creative um, the Creative Academy for Writers. But I did. And I'm so happy I did because I spent that entire year doing this, trying to do this and getting the confidence to face this journey, you know, and finish it. And I, I'm really happy I did. Oh, so are we. Let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> so so glad to hear that, because seriously, I still don't know if anyone will ever read it. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Have you looked at the reviews you're getting on Goodreads and, and, and Amazon? Yeah. Okay, good, good. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you are, because... Uh, 
uniformly, those people are, are you're, you're getting some really, really honest, good reviews. Yeah. And, and, and I think uh, people who aren't idiots are really understanding what it means to read a really good, talented, caring, feeling writer. Thank you. Because that's what you are, Missy. And don't forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Just really nice of you to say and really important to hear because it's like it has been ridiculously long journey and very hard and very, um, you know, soul searching kind of time period for me but it I, it feels have, cool to be on this end of it i can tell you that I and i just i look at them and i just love them i love the covers i think, I think we did a really good job of design on this book oh yeah that was yeah. another thing i wanted to ask about who did those covers his name is callum jagger he's just this guy who lives in england i guess <laughs> in the uk pardon me nice 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 discovery there they're yes. really pretty my my little publisher in Mossbank, saskatchewan uh, uses him as a designer and he's just like I, there was very little, there was almost nothing changed on Watersight from the initial presentation that he made to me. Um, the Spirit Site, we tried to, there was two different versions of the middle where the little uh, lion is in the middle mm -hmm. of the eye. And uh, I couldn't decide which to use, so I threw it out there like you're supposed to do, you know, on Facebook and said, please help me figure out which of these is better. And people voted on it, and we went with the vote. Um, to pick the red one because there was a black one also that was quite sharp nice. but, um, but i like it you know like i like the way it, and i love the background that he's done like he did he did um he used the actual mountains where uh the giant's chair and dogatlai are in uh, in spirit site and the water the way that he did the water in the background of water site i just i just really love it you know like yeah I really, What's not to love? It's really beautiful. Yeah, they really are. It's just so sad to me. I had these visions of myself sitting at book tables with these books, right? <laughs> and and now there's no, yeah, there's land, you know, like. But they're so coming soon. They're coming soon. Yeah. Get your shots. They're coming soon. Yeah, yeah. Promise you. Promise you. We will you. be back at, at writing conferences someday. <laughs> we'll be able to sit at a Sooner table. rather than later. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have a, I have a really important question for you. Okay. What's next? Well, I am working on another book. It's related to this series, whether it's going to be Last of the Gifted book three in the end or whether it's going to actually be um, a new series because it's kind of longish. And I'm wondering if Cam uh, and I had a bet. Yeah, we had a bet. <laughs> Cam, you want to tell her about it? Tell me. <laughs> Did you fall asleep, Cam? Oh, it's just, we were talking about it. We, we were saying, it's like, I'm awake. I'm okay. Um, I, I haven't fallen asleep, but you know, you know, you. Did we lose you? Are you still there or not? Your presence requires a lot of attention. I'm still, can you hear me? So yeah, you kind of faded in and out momentarily, but you're back. Okay, good. Anyway. Is yes, we were we were talking about this, and we were just trying to figure out where do you go from this. I mean, you can't. It would be. I I, I made the comparison is like when you 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 have the movie, you make a really good movie in Hollywood, and they say, "Ooh, that did really well. Let's make a sequel." Oh and yeah. And then you're just going, and I'm going. This seems to end nicely, but then Dome said something which was like. Well, how about something that's tangential to this story that extends the weave? And this is where we got talking about the weave and the tapestry uh -huh. and everything. Uh -huh. He said it's something that's also another hole in the tapestry that you didn't fill that maybe you could fill now with another story that is tangential. It's happening at the same time. And that's what he thinks. And so that so that was where the bet comes in. Oh, that's really cool. Because that's kind of what I've been doing. You know, like if I was I was like I told you last time I was seriously thinking about a book three because to me it's like, OK, we've got the arc of, of Hugh and Cat is kind of finished. But there is the land and what happened to Wales and how we got through it. And here I am in the middle of a pandemic. Right. And I know that when this is over, life is going to be changed. And I feel like this story as well 
now that they've got their place, there is something coming at them, which is the, the great procession that, that um, King Edward did around Wales when he rubbed his thumb on them and said, I have won. <laughs> and he took um, their, their relics and whatnot, and he, he um, processed around North Wales just to show them that he was the winner and they were the losers, right? Um, and I, I kind of want them to face him down I, I kind of need him, need them to face him down on that um, to figure out in my own head my original quest here, which was to to understand how a people can come after 800 years of that kind of subjugation, how you can still have your language at all um, or your culture to bring back in the, in the strength that they have brought it back, right? Uh, where like you have to, to, if you're in Wales today, your kids are going to school in Welsh um, you know, you're reading signs in Welsh. You pretty much have to speak Welsh to work in Wales right now. Um, and it's a heritage language. Like, you know, my grandfather, who was a Welsh speaker, would have been one of about 15% of the population who actually spoke Welsh. And almost all of them lived in the mountains of North Wales, right? <laughs> so, you know, to be able to bring that back in the 1990s and up to today in this kind of strength, there's still some questions that I have, right? Um, so that's and so it is kind of a tangent, tangential story. It's not probably going to be in Kat's point of view and Hugh's point of view. This other story, it's probably going to be in a different point of view that I'm still playing with, <laughs> um, because it's going to deal with the community around them and how um, they inspire the people, you know, to to. I don't know how to say it. It's like you don't you don't fight back by fighting. You fight back by being strong in your own self, right? Yeah. Um, being able to take it, being able to do that boxer thing where you you know the other guy gets tired before you do or whatever, right? Just like you know that that's what is the kind of sort of stoicism or whatever that the Welsh had that got them through this. It wasn't. It was like knowing that everyone is is making fun of you, knowing that everyone is trying to hurt you and, and you know, um, trying to push you down and you're just still standing, you know? Wherever that, you choose to, to bring it back, you've created this wonderful place mm -hmm. uh, that is half, histo half history, half fantasy, and all part of the wonderful world of the backstory that is the new world of Marie Paolo. And frankly, I can't wait to see where it goes. Super. So I'm looking forward to it. Super. And I hope it doesn't you, take me another 16 years. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it will. I actually am. I'm pretty happy with where I'm going with it right now. And this is helping, you know, like I kind of thought I've heard from other people um, that, that they felt that this story was nicely finished, like that there is a real roundness to it and it's it's good, you know, as it is, and don't screw with it kind of thing. And that, that if I'm going to do more with this time period and with this idea that, that I should make it a, um, a related series as opposed to another book in this series and let this one just be two. Two is weird, eh? Two is not, <laughs> two is not three. <laughs> Two is definitely well, not three. To do, you know? <laughs> but we but we have run into a few authors that have done some excellent duologies. So I mean, it's there's yeah. nothing wrong if if the story fits in two books, and it's perfect the way it is. Why extend it to three just because everybody writes three? Yeah. You know? That's the thing right there. It's it's that's what's hard. You know, being a writer is to know what what it is you're trying to do. Um, you've got sort of like the marketplace of readers to deal with. And you've got these weirdnesses that are that, you know, coming out from the pandemic, which is sort of changing everything you thought you knew <laughs> to begin with. Right. And uh, how is the world going to look and what are people going to be doing and, you know, who will read what in the end. Right. But um, but I do feel like there is more to be said, but maybe not through Kat's voice. There are other people in the story that interest me, too. And there would, you know, the English way of looking at life is that life is a community, right? 
um, it's not our North American way. We tend to think of individualism and, you know, um, sort of nuclear family, that type of thing. But I think this is a, a very English, a very, not English, but British, UK type story in that um, there is an ensemble cast here. And, you know. And there are other people worth looking at for sure. Yeah. Other so we're, whatever way you choose to go, Marie, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Most definitely. Thank and you. I'm sure the people who have read this book and the people who are going to read this book are looking forward towards seeing and experiencing what Wales could have been like in the 1200s, how you've, it, you've reimagined Wales to be, the characters you've brought to life for us, and the characters you're going to bring to life for us in, in the coming months and years and decades to come. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. It's been really great. Oh, it's been really great for all of us. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you could find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watts sauce we have. We love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. You can find Lawrence Made Me Cry's music on Bandcamp. And a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying... Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody. This is my brother, Yako.